0: I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping, and letting fall emptied cans of Holsten. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles, with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fagash, and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Albers' Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers, fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst, with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed, and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so lad I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought, and everything changed.
1: That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99 and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson.
2: Harry, what has the catering caravan come up with this time? Well, I've got um, I'm rattling them there. They're, they're Rolo combos, and I, I've been I've been detailing on this podcast how um, manufa- confectionery manufacturers have just been lumping everything together into one chocolate bar, you know. So they're just adding loads and loads of different things. But when I bought these Rolo combos, it says um with fudge and um, salted caramel popcorn. And so I imagine that it'd be a Rolo with fudge and and popcorn inside it. But no, when you open the packet, they're separate. There's a Rolo and there's there's Rolos, there's popcorn, and there's little bits of fudge. It's just they've deconstructed their own chocolate bars. <laughs> it's like they've gone from the Baroque to postmodernism down overnight. It's like we've, we've, one minute we're looking at a Rubens, the next it's a Jackson Pollock. And actually, if you tip these out... It would look like a Jackson Pollock painting, now I think of it. But I just don't know, what what, what are you going to do with this popcorn? It's in a packet. I don't know. Anyway, I'm bewildered by it, Dan. I'm bewildered by the steps that they're taking. My mind's a whirl. Could you plant
3: it so the more popcorn, a popcorn tree grows?
2: It sort of looks a bit like that, actually. Yes, it does in the packet. You know, you could shake them out there and then, you know, thin them out over time. And in the summer, yes, have a lovely crop of uh, Rolo's fudge and, and popcorn. And what else has been occurring in your life? What else has been occurring? Well, Dan, I went to uh, was at football as always. Um, there was a particularly noisy goalkeeper in the game I was at on Saturday who who shouted out various expressions that I've never heard before, including "big leg" and "left ball." Um, and at one point, he was shouting out so much that I actually wrote down a section of his shouting, in which he shouted, "Hold, hold! Squeeze, squeeze! Stay on top! Big five minutes!" Too early, too early. Do it again, Bonzo. <laughs> oh. um, so I don't know. I think it was he was shouting at his team. He may be moonlighting on a <laughs> premium rate telephone chat line, I suppose, yeah. is the other possibility. Uh, another thing that occurred um, was that, I don't know what's the worst offence, really, talking loudly on a mobile phone in a quiet coach or standing in front of the seating area at a non-league football ground, ignoring all the signs that say do not stand in front of the seating area. Because that's what happened. But also the man who was standing there was uh, was vaping. Huge clouds of whatever vaping things produces. It's steam. I don't know what it is, but massive clouds. You could only see the pitch. And then one of the blokes behind me went over, went across to this guy and he said, I'm really sorry, but there's no vaping in this area of the ground he said, "See that there, and there's a, there's a next to the stand. There's a little, there's a sort of patch of concrete where there must have been a building at one time that's since been knocked down." He said, "That that patch there, that's the designated vaping and smoking area. So if you want to vape and smoke, you have to go and stand there. So every time this guy vaped, he moved from his seat <laughs> and stood on this little patch of concrete, much to our amusement. <laughs> Small victories, Dan." small victories i say also um, i did mention a a very long a long a massive shootout that was between wrighton and crocker Albion and bishop auckland and i wondered if it was the longest penalty shootout in history well wonder no more because um on the 9th of march in the Ernest armstrong memorial cup Tower between washington and bedlington there was 54 penalties uh washington eventually winning 25 24 which is confirmed as the world record penalty shootout, possibly by those strange twins from Northern Ireland if they're still around.
1: <laughs> that's quite incredible, isn't it? So that's... that's 49 were scored and only five were missed. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think people I think are getting better. Yeah. Are people getting better at penalties? I was wondering that. I was watching Hartlepool Rotherham last night, uh, the semi final of the Papa John's, I think it is, the, the Leyland Daff trophy. There were a couple of saves in that one, but. But until that, I was thinking, with the Liverpool-Chelsea one and the, the Manchester United-Borough one, I was like, is that what's occurring? But that is only five missed, I think, out of...
3: our goalkeepers getting worse? Maybe the goalkeepers are getting smaller. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the other strange thing in the Hartlepool-Rotherham game last night, and I bet it was that on several occasions were heard sex noises over the commentary. I think it was some sort of teenager that had got near the microphones that are put by the pitch and I thought I'd, I was just what a strange thing to be imagining and started to worry about myself though worryingly my daughter also heard it so that was awful and I checked Twitter and lots of people had heard this so if anyone can explain the sex noises at Hartlepool United versus Rotherham United then do, do get in touch or, or don't because it's quite perplexing really.
3: <laughs> Andy any news from London way? Well um, I've often mentioned that I see teams uh, training in my local park and I saw a fight yesterday um, but between teammates, there's a bit of shoving each other in the chest. The coach would probably say it's a good sign, you know, as it shows they care. Um, I don't know what it was about, but maybe they're disagreeing whether Wordle is over now. That seems to be a big thing on social media. He's, maybe they were saying, you know, I'm done with Wordle, Josh. And the other one was saying, well, I, I still find it engaging, Liam, so have a shove for that. <laughs> um, still in London. Um, uh, one of the consequences of the the, the terrible uh, goings-on, a new war in Europe and so on, is that Roman Abramovich has been aiming to sell Chelsea and, and reportedly write off the, you know, the 1.2 billion in loans. So he still wanted at least 3 billion overall, so he's still going to profit. But just today, hot news, it is reported that his assets have been frozen, which may mean he can still sell up, but he won't be able to profit from the sale. This will also have adverse effects on Chelsea. It means they can't sell tickets to matches. The season ticket holders can go to games, but not, not others. And they can only spend up to a certain amount of money on travel, which might affect their ability to go to European games. So the next game... The Europe is at Lille, so at least there's the Eurostar, I suppose. Uh, players can probably fund their own... T- I'm sure they can afford to fund their own tickets if it came to. So, bit of a mess at Chelsea for now. Perhaps Roman Abramovich may even have lost that that bashful smile, we all know so well. I mean, if, if, if Just for the time being, Anyway, let, let's hope he gets it back. Um, on the subject of clubs of wealthy owners, I've got an urgent email um, uh, started this week from Newcastle's press office. I'll, I'll read it. It says... Just doing a count-up of our green photographer bibs, and we've unfortunately managed to misspace 12 from this season. I'd be grateful <laughs> if you could ask your photographers if they accidentally, in quotes, have one of our bibs at home or in the car, as we need as many back as possible to cover the end of the season. Now, I wouldn't want to tell the Saudi <laughs> government's public investment fund how to spend the money. I'm, j- I'm not that kind of person. Dan, frankly. But I reckon they could stretch to 12 extra photographer's bibs. Maybe it's not on the spreadsheet for the year, but make allowances, have some flexibility. You know, (laughs) think of the poor guy in the press office. He's not happy. It's quite a jaunty email, but you can tell, you read between the lines he's not happy at all with that. Another PR message we got recently, James Wilson, a.k.a. The Sleep Geek, in capital letters, has been appointed the official sleep therapist to West Ham United women's football team. There's a quote, James understands how crucial sleep is to playing well on the field. But doesn't everyone know that? I mean, you know you need to sleep. (laughs) What advice does a sleep therapist give? You know, just don't eat late at night, I think, is is the main one, isn't it? And then make sure the room you're in is dark before you settle in. You know, if I missed anything, I mean, that's that's £5,000, please, incidentally, for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Newcastle email is extraordinary. I like them hinting that photographers have stolen these as something they'd like to wear about yeah. the house, it's such a desirable
2: item. Maybe some sort of, some maybe that maybe those sex noises at Hartlepool are <laughs> somehow connected with that. Some sort of strange role playing. Oh, 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 oh! Hello, Mister Photographer. <laughs> <laughs> Someone polishing their telephoto lens. done probably what it was. Oh God. <laughs>
1: Issue 419 of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now and joining me to probe its pages is Deputy Editor Tom Hocking. Tom, tell us about some of the contents in this month's issue.
4: Yeah, hi Dan, um, well uh, to talk about this issue I have to take you back to 2003 um, before I was out of school and the new issue of uh, WSC 198 um, was about to go to press. Um, when there's some breaking news about some Russian, Russian oligarch about mm-hmm. to take over Chelsea. Um, cue a, a sort of a rapid last-minute change of plan, and suddenly the cover is two Chelsea players joking about a strange new owner. Um, no one in the WSC team seems to remember what the original cover was going to be, but skip forward 19 years, and uh, Abramovich did it again to us. Um, this time even later, we were literally uploading the new issue to our printer's servers when the statement was released that Chelsea were on, on the market to be sold so that was very exciting um, <laughs> it meant a bit of a rewrite of the of the editorial and yeah. uh, features on we already had features on, on Russia and how sanctions were affecting football around the world um, and obviously we needed a new cover as well um, so hopefully they they will have dropped through subscribed letterboxes this week um, and we were then worried that Chelsea would be sold by the time anyone saw the cover. But the day we're recording this today, um, this is also the day The magazine goes into the shops and it's just been announced that he's been sanctioned, possibly ending the chance to sell them. So basically, Roman Abramovich has been ruining WSC covers for (laughs) nearly 20 years now. (laughs) So thanks for that, Roman. Um, Maybe we should have stuck with the original cover. Um, I I won't tell you what it was, but we might release it as an NFT at some point or something like that if if times get desperate. (laughs) Um, but anyway, beyond beyond the cover, there's there's quite a lot to talk about. This is I can't remember a standard issue of WSC uh, having so many pages of, pages of articles and sort of so few ads. We had to reduce all of the ads to a, the minimum to get everything in because there's quite a lot going on in football. If if you hadn't noticed, <laughs> so so yeah. So obviously there, there's an article on on Russia as mentioned and how how those sanctions are affecting um, largely across Europe but also around around the rest of the world. But we've also got um, an article by Steve Mennery on how uh, CONIFA, which is the uh, association for supposedly sort of independent regions and states that sit outside FIFA, has kind of unwittingly become uh, a way for breakaway states, such as uh, in this this example, they use Luhansk and, and Donetsk to try and legitimize themselves. Um, so they're sort of possibly being slightly... Mani- what, what started out as association with very good intentions, possibly now being slightly uh, manipulated to the wills of of sort of political, global political um, egos, which which is a shame. Let's say there's also a feature by James Montague on Qatar because uh, the stuff going on in you know with Russia and, and Ukraine isn't enough. So uh, yeah, there's pe- feature by James Montague on on Qatar on the sort of long term plans with the Aspire Academy, which is is sort of a world class facility that they use to essentially tempt players, mostly from poorer countries. Naturalize them and use them to improve the Qatar national team. And obviously, this isn't going down particularly well with, with some countries, but it is working quite well for Qatar, whose influence is obviously increasing by the year in, in global football. And sort of, it's essentially a, a giant global PR push by, by Qatar using football. As as a way of of again legitimising themselves around the world, so so that's that's fun. Um, And and there's an accompanying piece uh, to that by uh, Lars Johnson about Norway's attempt to boycott this year's Mm. World Cup, and sort of Norway's football is run in quite an interesting democratic way, and a lot of the grassroots clubs and even sort of um, fans groups and stuff like that were very keen to boycott it but those at the sort of the top of the Norwegian associations weren't so keen and eventually it was it was slightly moot because they didn't qualify but what it has done is caused countries such as Denmark who have qualified to at least start speaking about out against the sort of treatment of migrant workers who are building the infrastructure to the tournament so it's quite interesting background sort of how Norway's stance has influenced other countries and hopefully other countries will start to take a bit of a stand as well if not boycotting i think it's unlikely any will boycott but um at least use the use the platform to speak out what um, else
1: have we got in there any, anything more in my wheelhouse <laughs> yeah. football food power. yeah
4: <laughs> football well we've got to balance out all of that Bring all the of that elite football <laughs> stuff as i say it's sort of um, it's, it's a packed issue. So, we, we yeah, we've got Pete Brooksbank on the rise of football food and the Twitter account Footy Scram, which I'm <laughs> sure you've seen if anyone, oh, it, if anyone has Twitter. <laughs> um, and it's sort of football is no longer the domain of sort of pies with nuclear cores uh, that have been sort of microwaved to oblivion and put on a tray next to really cold chips. <laughs> um, it's sort of, it, that article took me back to, so when when I was a student, my housemate worked at Bramall Lane in the in the catering department for one of the stands. Um, and he used to bring back the pies that were going out of date oh. before, the, ne- before <laughs> the next match. And we basically lived off them for a year. And it was really bleak. And Sheffield United are, are, um, actually sort of name checked as one of the clubs that perhaps haven't transformed their food so much. So I'm, I'm glad he doesn't still work there and I'm still not relying on them, to be honest, if if they'd um, if they'd taken on. Some other, some of the other club stances. Maybe it would have been quite a nice thing. To... <laughs> and this, <laughs> this culinary revolution hasn't quite
1: reached much of Scottish football. I have to confess as well you can still get a, a pie and a bread roll aloe
4: and things like that well I, i'd say that's a culinary revolution of yeah, well that's true like, of it's a, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um so we've we've also got um cameron carter um being his usual brilliant self on sort of finding peace with his decision to retire from amateur <laughs> football he played in in defense uh, for a team in cornwall um, and he took the decision to when he moved to a new area um he he obviously was too far away from his his previous team so he went to ask about local teams at his nearby leisure center and the, reception, the, the receptionist asked if he'd thought of trying walking football and that was the point at which he <laughs> he, he decided to take a step back um uh, and sort of as he says in the article, there's no one to announce it to, so it's sort of quite an, an internal dilemma to decide whether you've retired from, from amateur football. But he um he played in defence and he looked up his team's stats for his final season and they conceded 187 goals in 28 games. So so perhaps retirement was the best decision for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's a that's a, a sort of usually wonderful article yeah, by Cameron. Brilliant. Match of the month this month, it, uh, we sent Mike Wally to Tranmere vs Port Vale, and there's some excellent photos by Colin McPherson, which you'd expect because he he was on turf on home turf because mm. he's a he's a Tranmere fan. And it struck me from the photos, and obviously readers will see this that it, it is Prenton Park, the ground with possibly the best selection of football related street art around it wow, in the country. So yeah. readers, please let us know if any yes. better ones. Because it's it's not just one or one or two, you know, they've got a lot of murals um yeah. around the ground. And yeah, so that makes some really interesting mm. uh, interesting photos to the company. A really good article by by Mike Wally. And then uh, it's nonstop, as I say, we we've been running <laughs> a, a WSC Mentoring scheme with three aspiring female journalists um, in association with women in football. And one of them, Katya, appears in the new issue. And she braved uh, Caro Road just after Storm Eunice uh, to experience the Arnold Clark Cup, which was sort of England's warm-up tournament for sort of replacement of she believes which is run in america england had previously taken part in but but they've sort of started their own one because obviously england is hosting the euros this summer so overall the tournament was a success and england won in the the final game at, at mullet was quite exciting england beating germany and england did look quite good in it so overall i think i think the tournament was viewed as a success but there's definitely still a problem with non-England games because there are very low crowds for any game not involving England, and obviously most of the games at the Euros this summer are not going to involve England. So I think, sort of as Katia says, the FA and and UEFA do have some work to do to to get the crowds in for the non-England games this summer. And speaking of Storm Eunice, there was uh, a shot feature this month, which was, which was quite good fun. So originally we were sending Simon Gill to, to Yeovil but that was cancelled the night before, so he tried, uh, he tried to stay a little bit more local to him and tried Lewis instead, the, the drip, a dripping pan. I don't think it has a verb before it, just dripping pan. That was called off an hour before kickoff. And his next stop was uh, Whitehawk, and that was, that was rained off too. And there's a great photo of sort of a corner flag being blown over. And then he finally found some football at, at Haywood's Heath Town. Um, they were playing three bridges and once you've seen the photos, the excellent photos that Simon managed to get of of, of that game, um, I recommend looking up the highlights on YouTube because it was a spectacular 3-2 match that included some some real comedy goals and spectacular goals so yeah well worth it the the, the wind and rain really added to, to that match
1: brilliant stuff so plenty there and, and yet more harry's column of course as usual about pitch invaders a piece on the polish national team sean Dice. i particularly enjoyed nick Quantrell writing about bridlington town another packed issue then and do go out and buy it yes please do <laughs>
5: jackpot tickets Pound a Roll it off time. 500 pound prize draw. Get your, your hats and hats. scarves and pin badges. Your hats and scarves and pin
1: badges. Get your hats and scarves and pin badges. Pin badges, hats, scarves. Hats and scarves and pin badges. Programs.
4: Programs. Programs.
1: Subscribe to when Saturday comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts, and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk
5: Jackpot tickets, pound a go, draw it half time, 500 pounds... Right, I'm going to give
1: the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Jason Van Blurk, International Harvesters FC, depictions of the Sherpa Van Trophy in the early works of Norman Mailer. And it's landed on caretaker and saviour managers. Hmm. Harry, what the ecky thump does that bring to mind?
2: Well, it brings to mind um, Gordon Lee, who died this week. Um, famous manager at Newcastle and Everton, as Andy would recall, of course, um, yes. always looked a bit like bit, he looked a bit like Lurch out of um, out of the Adams family, didn't he? Um, and he famously said, uh, "Just because you're dead doesn't mean you have to lie down and be buried." <laughs> um, and he took he, he brought that philosophy when because he, he he took over as caretaker boss of Leicester after David Pleat had uh, left and man- and guided them saved them from uh, relegation. Um, another man that I think of as well is uh, Tony Parks is famous as the the sort of ultimate caretaker boss was in charge of Blackburn six times just as caretaker. But in, there's a there's a Spanish equivalent of him who is uh, Salvador Gonzalez uh, Mario AKA Voro. And he was caretaker manager of Valencia uh, six times. Um, on among, among the people he replaced, Ronald Koeman, uh, Nuno Espirito Santo, and Cesare Prandelli. But the, probably the, the the an ignominy that was never visited on Tony Parks befell poor old Voro. Um, he was replaced by Gary Neville. <laughs> um, uh, another another person who comes to mind is a slightly strange one. A man who was a sort of perpetual assistant manager, um, Sandy Stewart. Um, he originally was he was player manager of Airdrie, and he brought Owen Coyle in as his assistant. But then, in a sort of one of those things, a bit like something out of a Harold Pinter, somehow he became assistant to Owen Coyle, having been having had Owen Coyle as assistant. The roles were reversed, and then he he was assistant to Owen Coyle at St John'son, Burnley, Bolton, Wigan, Houston Dynamo. Blackburn Ross County, and as, as far as I can recall now, they're currently together at, at Jamshedpur FC in the Indian Super League. And Sandy Stewart, after he left Airdrie, was only in charge of a team on his own for one single game, which was the um, which was the Scottish Cup when when he, was, he took charge of St Johnson. Owen Owen Coyle left just before the 2007 Scottish Challenge Cup final. Um, and so he took charge and he was only in charge for five days. And of course, they won the cup, which was, I think was the first time St. Johnson had won a cup since 1911. And that was it. That was his single game in charge. And the only time he's been in charge of a team since he left Airdrie. So that's, I don't know, it's the last sort of 20 years. just so been a perpetual assistant to Owen Coyle. It could happen to any of us. It, it could. Well, really, I mean, I can see that the advantage of that, you know, because obviously like, with this podcast, I, you know, you're in charge, you and Andy are in charge and I'm just witter, I just sort of <laughs> witter on in an incoherent manner. So I imagine that's Rob well, Sandy Stewart. That's probably he did. <laughs> that's probably that's his role. I see myself in the Sandy Stewart role. I mean, there may be a time when you and Andy aren't here when I have to take charge completely on my own and pull off pull off something remarkable. <laughs> which takes us back to the Victoria game, yes, doesn't it? it really does. Yeah. <laughs> this is
1: definitely the smut episode. Uh, on which lines, I'm happy to confirm that I'm not wearing really short shorts like Owen Coyle does when he manages... <laughs> <laughs> which always, always perturbed me about his
3: style. Um, and Andy, anything on that one? Well, yes. Um, a name to conjure with: Frank Barlow, caretaker at Nottingham Forest from uh, from February two thousand and five six. After Gary Megson was was sacked, following a run of seven games, that went under Barlow. Forest won eight drew four and lost one of the remaining games, including beating Swindon seven one. And they finished. They'd been in the bottom half. They finished seventh, just outside the playoffs. But he didn't want the job full time. Perhaps he sensed that his honeymoon period wouldn't last because he'd previously been a manager without much success at Chesterfield who got relegated under him. And Scunthorpe in the eighties was nearly 20 years before. And subsequently he'd been a, a coach rather than a manager. Maybe it's easier psychologically to be called a caretaker, in which case maybe he could perhaps have carried on like that, maybe even worn like a brown overall and carried a broom as a prop and, and saying things before the game, like, you yeah, know, I'm not stopping lads, but I think today we could try this, this, and this. And he would give him some advice and before the end of the match, he'd head back into the dressing room with his broom. And when the players came in, he'd say, how did you get on? Oh, 7-1. Oh, great. That's great. So can somebody give me a hand with this industrial hoover? It would have taken the, <laughs> have taken the pressure off the players a bit. Should have perhaps given it a try. Um, Harry mentioned a, a, a caretaker manager in Spain. There's a, a, another one, Louis Maloney, uh, Real Madrid's Irish caretaker. His, his surname, which was originally Irish, had been Hispanicized as M-O-L-O-W-N-Y. Um, he was born in Spain. He was next Real Madrid player in the 40s and 50s. He went on to the coaching staff from the early 70s to the 90s. And he was frequently caretaker manager when the latest one of the big-name coaches was sacked. He was officially managing them a couple of times, after which he was allowed to go back to a sort of behind-the-scenes role until they put him to the next one. So you'd imagine he would have had his own parking space. I imagine having quite a mm-hmm. modest car. And probably his own, ta- his own table in the canteen and perhaps his own menu, you know, always a chicken salad on Tuesdays type of thing. Um, and a similar sort of deal. Ronnie Moran at Liverpool, um, there is a player then, there's a coach for 40 years or so, and part of the so-called uh, boot room, backroom staff, along with Joe Fagan and Roy Evans. They were both uh, managers. Though Ronnie Moran was only ever caretaker. He took over as caretaker when Kenny Daglish resigned after a four-all FA Cup draw with Everton in 91. Liverpool had been ahead four times and finished four-all. And Everton won the replay after Moran uh, took over. They'd also have a 7 1 win, uh, like Front Barlow, away uh, at Derby, though they, they then lost the next game at home to QPO. And Graham Soonis then took over and they won the cup. I remember one of the, the goals in the final against Sunderland, Moran celebrated by reaching oh, reaching down and kind of massaging Graham Soonis' calves, which seemed like an odd way to celebrate. <laughs> Maybe it's like a bet they had. <laughs> I wouldn't want to massage Graham Soonis' calves under any circumstances, actually, I don't think, even if I was asked to do so. Or especially if I was asked to do so.
2: Maybe it's one of those things like patting a bald man's head for good luck, maybe massaging <laughs> Graeme. Maybe Graham Soonest had lucky calves.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe some, some sort of folk wisdom, um, but we, we, which probably we will have to delve further into that. Perhaps. Of course, there's, <laughs> there's also Joe Mercer, of course, caretaker manager of England in 1974 between the sacking of Alf Ramsey and the appointment of Dom Revy, and he opened his first team talk by saying, I never wanted this bloody job in the first place. The England, it was said, played with a lot more flair than usual while he was in charge. The same can't be said of other more recent England caretaker managers. There's um, the performatively grumpy Howard Wilkinson, who was a technical director of the FA, was also England caretaker manager twice. um, In 1999, after Glenn Hoddle left, and then in 2000, after Kevin Keegan. The first game was a 2-0 home defeat against France, and then a goalless draw with Finland in the World Cup qualifier. And also in 2000, Peter Taylor, who's been described as a promising young manager until he's about 65, was England coach of a manager for one game, a 1-0 defeat in Italy when Steve McLaren was assistant. That's the only England cap for Seth Johnson, possibly the first um, England player since the 19th century to be called Seth, I think. Um, <laughs> basically, Joe Mercer was the only one who's any good at, at this. And why is that? I think because he was relaxed. That's my assessment. I, I don't think those other managers are very relaxed. Do mm. you understood you just had to go in there and just be calm. <laughs> It was nice to
1: hear Ronnie Moran's name there. I must admit, I don't know that much about Ronnie Moran, but as a kid, I used to find him such a sort of uncle figure in the way he looked. He always reminded me a bit of Little John in the Disney version of the Robin Hood cartoon, and I think that was maybe why. And just seems like a really just avuncular figure on the touchline compared to some the way some football figures looked. So it's
3: nice to hear a mention of him. Was Little John a bear in the Disney? Car? Is that the one I think he was. That's right. Was, yeah.
2: <laughs> I
1: was thinking very about very similar
3: to Baloo in Jungle Book. It might have even been voiced by the same actor. Yeah, that's very possible. So I hear that that uh,
1: every time I think of Ronnie Moran, which is a really pleasant association <laughs> to make. I've <laughs> mentioned Neil Warnock already in this podcast. Non-Patreon listeners join Patreon to hear our red-hot Neil Warnock chatter in the Patreon letters section. And when he came to Middlesbrough, he compared himself to Red, Red Adair. I realised I didn't know who Red Adair was and I've now looked at him. I really thought it was someone along the lines of evil Knievel that did stunts but it wasn't, was it? It was to do with the oil industry. You can educate me, you two maybe.
2: Well, He was famous because he was one of those people whose legend has lived on through his name. Yeah, you know, but he was. There was a film, I think, based on his life called Hell Fighters with John Wayne in it, which came, I might it came out in 1968. So I might actually have seen it at the pictures. At the talkies, I put if you I put football Red Adair into Google, and the first two pages produced this: down, uh, Jimmy Calderwood denied being fo- Scottish football's Red Adair. <laughs> Neil Warnock reveled in his Red Adair image. Sam Allardyce described himself as football's Red Adair. Liam Beckett is the Irish League's Red Adair. Gus Hiddink is the Red Adair of international football. Jimmy Duffy feels like Scottish football's Red Adair. John Hughes is the Red Adair of Scottish football. Alan Ball was football's Red Adair, while Eddie Howe stopped short of labelling himself Red Adair. And, you know, so Red Adair is a bit, but the other person who crops up who is similar is Harry Houdini, because Harry Houdini, who died, I don't know, back in the 1920s, I would guess, he also crops up because people, he's pulled off a Houdini act. So, you know, Harry Houdini's name remains in the public consciousness in the same way that Red Adair does, whereas Evil Knievel, no one says he's done an Evil Knievel. Today <laughs> and jumped over a dozen buses well why, why would anyone be doing that and then what you'd gone well it could be the teams in the metaphor it could be the teams that you've leapfrogged well it could be the, in in the, the other because the other figure like that is Devon Locke as well the horse that fell over in the in the Derby I don't know trying to jump a, it tried to jump over a shadow thinking it was a fence and fell over Um, And therefore lost in the you know lost a race it should have won and so Devon Locke crops up as well but uh, yes a red a day as he did put out fires on oil rigs that was his uh, that was his specialism Um, quite 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 an esoteric specialism you would think (laughs) to end up being so often mentioned in the context of football.
3: Evil Knievel, I remember, um, um, had his spleen removed before one of his big jumps in case he burst his spleen when he crashed. Shares oh. a birthday with me, born on the same, not on not the same year, but the same day. But it's the kind of thing I imagine I would have, the kind of forethought I would also have shown if I was about to pilot <laughs> a, a, a bike over the Grand Canyon. Another person who, whose name actually does come up, sometimes in a football context, one of those people from a long time ago whose name is remembered is Fred Carno.
4: Fred Carno's oh, yes, yeah.
3: circus, something being chaotic. A, a manager saying it's like, it's Fred Carno's circus out there. Which is strange because he had a, a travelling review review that Charlie Chaplin with Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel were in. That's how they ended up going to America because they were in Fred Karno's circus. I think that's how he how his legend kind of lived on.
2: Yeah, the Keystone
1: Cops as well. Yeah, Keystone Cops. There's a, there's an awful lot to unpack, as the youth would say, about the uh, Red Adair stuff, and I, I'm particularly intrigued to know how Eddie how stopped short did he say I'm going to stop short of calling myself
2: the red <laughs> he did oh, that's right I don't know why he stopped short of it maybe he literally said that yes I'm not going to call myself red today because that seems to be the thing either people claim they are it or they deny they're it. yeah uh, the other thing I was wondering about is whether there
1: was a phrase for caretaker managers in other countries uh, you know I mean in Scotland alone the caretaker is more more Commonly known as the janitor or the janny, so I don't know if the janitor manager doesn't seem to be used, though, unfortunately.
2: No, but the the fireman thing is certainly quite often used in German football. That seems to be, I I presume, whatever the German for fireman is, because there have been quite a few German managers who were famous as firemen, including uh, Felix Magat, who... um, credited with saving Werder, Bremen, Eintracht, Frankfurt, Stuttgart, Wolfsburg, amongst others. Um, his, his method certainly had a, an air of uh, perhaps Sam Allardyce or Neil Warnock and other red adairs of English football because um, he was famously, famously very making the players train very hard. Um, one, of, one of the players, I think at Eintracht, um, described him as the last dictator in Europe, to which we can say, if, if only...
1: Time for the part of the podcast where one of us chooses a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what's your choice
3: this time? Well, oh, Bayern Munich, Bundesliga-Marsch by Munkner Blas Orchestra, It is is one of apparently several uh, marches uh, celebrating uh, Bayern brought out over the next few years. This is from 1965. Bayern had just got promoted from the second division, the Riga Liga Sud, to the Bundesliga, and that was... It was one of five second divisions Germany had at the time, so a lot of their opponents then were semi-professional clubs. They'd moved from um, often playing against quite small teams back into the big time. Bayern, at this point, 1965, still weren't the biggest club in Munich because the next season, their local, local rivals, Munich 1860, won the league uh, with Bayern finishing third, but Bayern won the cup and then they won the European Cup Winners' this cup next year and they were champions a couple of years later. And Munich 1860 haven't won anything since. Other than lower division titles, was buying of course, and now another monstrous corporate blight on football. But such a fine line, isn't it?
4: tree falls and no one can is there to hear it fall does it make a noise so does a penguin get cold what way does your bath water go sam's had a lovely haircut it's started to grow out now coops is here working silently away robbie's over there it's the first time he's been quiet today terry's brought a briefcase in you know he's got four japanese talking dogs in there this is this is what we work with and we'll continue to work hard
1: Now it's time for our sort of new feature, The Final Third, in which we ask someone to help us build a football museum by donating a match, a player and an object. This time I'm joined by John Sperling, a writer for When Saturday Comes, among many others, and an author whose brand new book, Get It On, how the 70s rocked football is available, and when Saturday comes shop, and all the other usual places. And great reviews so far. Hello, John.
5: Hi, Daniel. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you.
1: That's our pleasure. So tell us about the book, what it is, why you wanted to write it.
5: So, yeah, I mean, I've always been always been fascinated by it the 1970s. I was born in 1970. And um, obviously, as a, as a football fan as well, and a, and a history teacher and a politics teacher, he's kind of it's kind of um, a perfect for me. I mean, I I kind of grew up with with football in in the latter part of the seventies when when televised matches were were few and far between. Um, you know, I watched the FA Cup finals. European Cup finals as well with Forest and Liverpool in, and um, you know I, I always love the music from the era. Um, I've, I've always been interested in history, and have always been aware that you know the seventies is a is is a, is a turbulent era generally with with you know political industrial unrest um, you know glam rock um, all sorts all sorts going on politically and economically and. As I kind of, um, you know, started to look at football, as I started to write about football in a more historical way, I realised that, you know, in some ways the seventies set the tone for football, but actually football also, in many ways, set the tone for for the seventies. Yeah. Um, as I as I explored in, in the book and. Um, for me, it, it's the most cutting edge of all football decades because I think it kind of sets the scene for a lot of what came afterwards and what we now take for granted in football.
1: And you have to say it looked bloody brilliant—the <laughs> hair, the kits, the mud. I mean, tell us about the cover of the book. There's a bit of a scrap going on on
5: the front. Of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. I mean, on on the front, it's, it's, it's obviously I'm an Arsenal fan. It's not a book about Arsenal at all, but um, it's a. I think a fantastic picture of Charlie George and Bob McNabb getting getting stuck in on Newcastle play with Peter Peter Coldine story story there on the on the on the left hand side and you know it was Biteback that chose the the colouring um, of of the front cover and uh, I think it works really well because if if you look back to you know your mum and dad's photos from that era or your grandparents or your own if you're of a certain age listening to this you'll see that actually burnt orange and brown are the in colours of the 70s. And, and, you know, Coventry City took it to, to another level in terms of their chocolate brown kit. In America, going brown was called earth toning. I quite, I quite like that. So, um, yeah, they are the colours of the 70s for me. So I think it's kind of that low lighting. Um, that you see on 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 photos from the from from 50 years ago which i think i think makes the front cover um, appealing definitely take us inside the book i mean did you take
1: a, a chronological approach 71 72 onwards what's the way you've gone about it
5: no no not at all i mean the, the book the book as I, as i say in the foreword kind of it kind of came together it's taken me 25 years to get it over the line i mean i've written other books But I started my freelancing career back in 1990 and I was lucky enough for this book to have interviewed a lot of footballers and people from that era who sadly are no longer with us. So, you know, I I interviewed George Best in, in 2004. Um, I've, I've interviewed Stan Bowles when he was um, at, his, at his bullish best as well. So really, it, it came from um, a load of interviews that I've done down the years for English football magazines and also American, American soccer magazines as well. Um, it, so it, it's kind of been pieced together from that. And I always really struggled with the structure of it. Um, because I haven't gone chronologically, I've gone thematically in terms of um, the great managers, uh, in terms of looking at the philosophy behind the great teams like Derby and Leeds and Liverpool and Forrest, um, but also looking at the kind of the commercialism of football, the fact that football um, for the, the small number of black players in the 70s was, was, was a very challenging abusive time for them as well. Um, I've looked at uh, the, the, the emergence of, of continental players uh, in, in the game, as well, like Tyson and Muir and Ipswich and, you know, the, the two Argentinians at, at Tottenham, Villa um, and Adidas. And, and also I've focused in my chapter on Al- the, the, the often forgotten story of Alberto Tarantini at Birmingham. So, you know, some chapters have to be specific years, like my first one on the panel at the 1970 World Cup with Jimmy Hill and Malcolm Allison and Bob McNabb and Derek Dugan, and obviously at the tail end, Forrest winning the European Cup at the end of the decade. But a lot of it, there's themes that run throughout the 70s. So you've got kind of the chronological element, but also the thematic element. And as someone who's, you know, my job is to get students to write their history and politics essays in either one or the other way doing it both ways sort of quite fried my brain at times i'll be honest with you <laughs> um, but i think i think it's worked out well some are Some are definitely in chronological order and some cut right through the whole decade in terms of, you know, Admiral Kitts, in in, in terms of, you know, Don Revy, for instance, popping up at different times and the stories of Liverpool and Manchester United and narratives that go right through the 70s, I think.
1: Fantastic stuff. Well, the reviews have been brilliant from Henry Winter, a fascinating, funny and poignant stroll down memory lane of an era that shaped the modern game and Patrick Barclay. This is his most vivid book yet. Sheer Joy, a nice feeling to, to think it's your most vivid book yet because you've done quite a few John so that's a good feeling to think you're still improving
5: isn't it <laughs> yeah I mean I, I took the approach with 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 asking his guys to review the book like I did with the, the footballers I interviewed I just asked them and um, and I found with the players from the era that they was they were so accessible you know I just dm'd Rodney Marsh on Twitter <laughs> and he and he got back to me within half an hour saying you yeah, choose whenever you want to talk Rod so you don't have to fly me and George West I kind of stepped in in the theme pub in Chelsea, which he used to frequent. And he was initially suspicious, but he spoke to me. And yeah, I was, I've been bowled over by the, you know, by the, by the reviews and and the comments.
1: Fantastic stuff. So Get It On is out now and in the When Saturday Comes shop and elsewhere. Well, John, I've invited you along today, not just to talk about this fantastic new book, but as our latest guest curator in the When Saturday Comes Museum. But first of all, I'd like to ask you to contribute to the museum a match, match.
5: Okay, I've spent a little bit too much time this week thinking about this. <laughs> I've sort of pondered it long and hard on my journeys to work. Um, okay, so a match. I mean, there's I've gone full seventies for the for the museum, as you might expect. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to choose the European Cup clash between Derby County and Benfica. For me, that match is peak. Clough Derby so Derby won the league in uh, in 72 and obviously they got into the European Cup and they played Benfica at the baseball ground in front of forty one thousand. Anyone who went to the old baseball ground it was a really tight compact ground stands really high it, you made a made a rare old racket yeah. and you know a lot of the players you could smell the smoke from the fans who were smoking uh, next to the next to it. and Derby absolutely outplayed Benfica Three nil in Figueira and all their Portuguese stars and Derby were immense. I mean, football from the 70s hasn't always aged well, but that Derby team was still really, really easy on the eye. Even John McGovern, who didn't score too many goals, got in on the on the act that night, and I think that was peak. Clough's Derby because the 70s is the era of the provincial club made good you know Forrest and Derby did very well and, and that couldn't couldn't really happen in the modern era I don't think mm. and I think the other the other aside about that game is that Brian Clough um, ensured that the pitch was nicely flooded um, the night before um, he gets uh, his groundsman um, Bert Smith to, to flood it and sometimes the fire brigade would chip in as well and it did a lovely clear day in the East Midlands. And you say they was puzzled as to why the, the mud was slopping over their boots and you know, Peter Taylor just shrunk. But the thing is that Clough did that, not to kind of level things out, but because he thought that his players had the skill to flourish on that type of pitch anyway. Mm-hmm. So you have the wonderful sights of Alan Hinton bombing down the left wing, um, you know, Kevin Hector, um, Roy McFarlane, it was a fantastic team. And that is my match from, from the
1: 70s. Excellent stuff. Well, it could be a sort of abstract installation with a piece of muddy, squelchy grass inside a case. I think that would be a lovely yeah, thing. That,
5: yeah, that could never, ever dry.
1: A worm run type thing, I'm thinking. OK, John, well, now give us a player for the museum, please.
5: So my player is going to be Stan Bowles. And the reason I've chosen Stan Bowles is because, for me, he embodies the kind of new era of flashy, long-haired, maverick that dominated the 70s that to me they're baby boom footballers who emerged after world war ii yeah. you know for them rationing and um national service and stories of the great depression meaning as you know um, was it rob stein steen said in his book the maverick they wore their lack of convention as a, as a badge of honor i think he said and stan bowles embodied the era in a sense he was a magnificent entertainer yeah but ultimately the Mavericks weren't um, successful trophy-wise, in the sense that in that season, the 75 76 season, QPR were picked the title by a more hard-working, pragmatic Liverpool. So Stan Bowles and his flamboyance is, you know, is, is remembered by QPR fans today, but ultimately didn't pick up the, the the silverware. And Stan Bowles was never properly um, embraced by a succession of Don Revy in particular as, as England manager, that you mistrusted him. So he embodies the 70s of, of flair players against more kind of the, the system, if you see what I mean. Which yeah, is not yeah. Great. That's yeah, Stambouls would be my choice. Okay, John, we've got our match. We've got our player. Now hand us an object for the museum. Okay. The object for the museum is a Jack Charlton sock tag. <laughs> so one of my one of the favourite chapters in the book is where I write about the the well-known sports artist, Paul Trevillion, yes. the Beaver, who yeah. worked very hard with the leads. He went to Don Revy with a crazy plan to um turn leads into super leads. Um <laughs> and he introduced various kind of gimmicks like choreographed warm-ups before the kickoff, like sock tags, which the players would have uh, around their socks and which they could give to the fans afterwards in which they would you know they would, they would swap it at school and that kind of thing <laughs> um, and they also had the target balls numbered target balls which are hoof to the crowd and and Paul Trevelyan reckoned these would bump up the, the number of kids coming to the ground because they could swap them on Monday and everything else and initially the Leeds players were very very skeptical of Paul Trevelyan's ideas especially Jack Charlton that used particularly fruity language as I uh, the guy, people within in the book under the in the track of the but in the end, Revy and the players accepted and embraced Paul Trevelyan's ideas. And after Leeds won the FA Cup in seventy two, Jack Charlton not only shook Paul Trevelyan's hand, but presented, it, presented him with a Jack Charlton stock tag, which I think is a great story. So yes. my uh, object is a Jack Charlton stock tag. That is wonderful.
1: There must be a museum shop, I think, and would certainly go into to sell sock tags in there. I don't think any museum shop has done that before, so that'll be an ex- no, <laughs> the right, kind of product right. we need. <laughs> well, talking of the extras in the museum, people will have been thinking so hard by all of the images that have just, you know, put their their brains all over the place. They will need a snack. They will be hungry. What mm. are you contributing
5: to the when Saturday comes museum cafe? Right. Well, I'm going to go all seventies flash on you, as you as you might have expected by now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna um gonna give and, and of course I don't think there was much thought of vegetarianism back in the 70s, especially for footballers, steak diamond. And I'm gonna go for that. <laughs> because when 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 George Best started to go abroad on holiday, he got he got the he he realised there was more to life than his landlady Mary Fullerways, meat and potatoes and um steak pies and that kind of thing. Yeah. So he went for for, for steak Diane. And I think that symbolises the fact that, that footballers' um, dietary habits were starting to go a bit more at market. I could have plugged for Malcolm Allison's beef bourguignon, oh, yeah. which he says in his shoot survey is his favourite food. Can I can I ask would people be allowed to wash it down with a 70s drink as well? Oh
1: yes, absolutely,
5: yes. Right. Let's go for a, a nice glass of Courvoisier. Ooh. <laughs> the, the choice of, of Tommy Doherty and other stressed-out 70s managers, and the, the who drummer Keith Moon as well. So we'll have um, we'll go for Steak Down, wash down with um, a not too small glass of Courvoisier. <laughs>
1: Absolutely magnificent. (laughs) A perfect day out in the museum. Thank you very much, John. (laughs) Lovely. Thanks very much. You have been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Do join me, Andy, and Harry again next time for more vital, topical, and half decent chatter.